Hey everyone, it's me. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying alive. Hope you're all doing well. I haven't had to say, hey, hope your commute's going well for a while, which is nice. I hope no one's having to commute unless you want to commute. And just, just stay safe out there, everyone. For the month of June, we're going to be talking about Algernon Blackwood, and also, we're also going to be talking about Glacky for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Stay with us, and also remember that this show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. You know, it's, it's, it's getting warm out, but if you're like me, can't sleep having problems, wandering around the house, middle of the night, cleaning. Yeah, linoleum's cold, hardwood floors are cold, ceramics cold, tiles cold. You know what's not cold? Bunny slippers, Highland Cow slippers. Look cool, like uh, what, 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 Chris Knight from Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Get some cool bunny slippers and then head on over to founditemclothing.com and get one of those cool shirts that he wears. I Heart Toxic Waste or Surf Nicaragua or any of those shirts that, I don't know, maybe they're problematic nowadays. I, I, I don't remember what they all are. And you know what? If there was something that you thought was funny before that it's now problematic and you've decided to change your mind about whether or not you think it's problematic or not, you know, you you no longer think that certain jokes in Revenge of the Nerds are funny. Good for you. That's called growth, and it's okay. You're not a you're not a hypocrite if you change your mind. If that you decide that past beliefs aren't what they are, and that you're smarter about it. Remember to use your voice. Remember to vote. Remember to help people who need help. Don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it's my job to tell people what to do. I don't feel like it's my job to. But oh man, I, I sure feel responsible if I don't. I sure feel like I could have said something. Someone could have learned something, and whatever. I feel like I've been bullied in the past by people who don't want to hear what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And those people can pretty much go away. I don't want them listening to my show. I don't want them writing in. Stay safe, and check the show notes for how you can help people. And here's some Algernon Blackwood for Weird Tales for you. Here we go. Org. Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood. Sand. Chapter 6. Next day, and for several days following, Henry O. kept out of the path of Lady Statham and her nephew. The acquaintanceship had grown too rapidly to be quite comfortable. It was easy to pretend that he took people at their face value, but it was a pose. One liked to know something of antecedents. It was otherwise difficult to place them. And Henriot, for the life of him, could not place these two. His subconsciousness brought explanation when it came, but the subconsciousness is only temporarily active. When it retired, he floundered without a rudder in confusion. With the flood of morning sunshine, the value of much she had said evaporated. Her presence alone had supplied the key to the cipher, but while the indigestible portions he rejected, there remained a good deal he had already assimilated. 
the discomfort remained, and with it the grave, unholy reality of it all. It was something more than theory. Results would follow. If he joined them, he would witness curious things. The force with which it drew him brought hesitation. It operated in him like a shock that numbs at first by its abrupt arrival, and needs time to realize in the right proportions to the rest of life. These right proportions, however, did not come readily, and his emotions ranged between sceptical laughter and complete acceptance. The one detail he felt certain of was this dreadful thing he had divined in Vance. Trying hard to disbelieve it, he found he could not. It was true. Though without a shred of real evidence to support it, the horror of it remained. He knew it in his very bones. And this, perhaps, was what drove him to seek the comforting companionship of folk he understood and felt at home with. He told his host and hostess about the strangers, though omitting the actual conversation because they would merely smile in blank miscomprehension. But the moment he described the strong black eyes beneath the level eyelids, his hostess turned with a start, her interest deeply roused. "'Why, it's that awful Statham woman!' she exclaimed. "'That must be Lady Statham and the man she calls her nephew.' "'Sounds like it, certainly,' her husband added. "'Felix, you'd better clear out. They'll bewitch you, too.' And Henriot bridled, yet wondering why he did so. He drew into his shell a little, giving the merest sketch of what had happened— but he listened closely while these two practical old friends supplied him with information in the gossiping way that human nature loves. No doubt there was much embroidery and more perversion, exaggeration too, but the account evidently rested upon some basis of solid foundation for all that. Smoke and fire go together always. "'He is her nephew right enough,' Mansfield corrected his wife before proceeding to his own man's form of elaboration." "'No question about that, I believe. "'He is her favourite nephew, and she's as rich as a pig. "'He follows her out here every year, waiting for her empty shoes. "'But they are an unsavoury couple. "'I've met em in various parts all over Egypt. "'But they always come back to Helouan in the end, "'and the stories about them are simply legion. "'You remember?' he turned hesitatingly to his wife. "'Some people I heard,' he changed his sentence. "'were made quite ill by her. "'I'm sure Felix ought to know, yes,' his wife boldly took him up. "'My niece Fanny had the most extraordinary experience.' "'She turned to Henriot. "'Her room was next to Lady Statham in some hotel or other at Asuan or Edfu, "'and one night she woke and heard a kind of mysterious chanting or intoning next her. "'Hotel doors are so dreadfully thin.' There was a funny smell, too, like incense of something sickly, and a man's voice kept chiming in. It went on for hours while she lay terrified in bed. "'Frightened, you say?' asked Henriot. "'Out of her skin, yes. She said it was so uncanny. Made her feel icy. She wanted to ring the bell, but was afraid to leave the bed. The room was full of, of things. Yet she could see nothing. She felt them, you see.' And after a bit the sound of this sing-song voice so got on her nerves, it half-dazed her, a kind of enchantment. She felt choked and suffocated. And then it was her turn to hesitate. "'Tell it all,' her husband said quite gravely, too. "'Well, something came in,' 
at least she describes it oddly rather she said it made the door bulge inwards from the next room but not the door alone the walls bulged or swayed as if a huge thing pressed against them from the other side and at the same moment her windows she had two big balconies and the venetian shutters were fastened both her windows darkened though it was two in the morning and pitch dark outside she said it was all one thing trying to get in just as water you see would rush in through every hole and opening it could find and all at once and in spite of her terror that's the odd part of it she says she felt a kind of splendour in her a sort of elation she saw nothing she says she doesn't remember her senses left her i believe though she won't admit it fainted for a minute probably said mansfield so there it is his wife concluded after a silence and that's true it happened to my niece didn't it john stories and legendary accounts of strange things that the presence of these two brought poured out of them they were obviously somewhat mixed one account borrowing picturesque details from another and all in disproportion as when people tell stories in a language they are little familiar with but listening with avidity yet also with uneasiness somehow henriot put two and two together truth stood behind them somewhere these two held traffic with the powers that ancient egypt knew tell felix dear about the time you met the nephew horrid creature in the valley of the kings he heard his wife say presently and mansfield told it plainly enough evidently glad to get it done though it was some years ago now and i didn't know who he was then or anything about him i don't know much more now except that he's a dangerous sort of charlatan devil i think but i came across him one night up there by thebes in the valley of the kings you know where they buried all their johnnies with so much magnificence and processions and masses and all the rest it's the most astounding the most haunted place you ever saw gloomy silent full of gorgeous lights and shadows that seem alive terribly impressive it makes you creep and shudder you feel old egypt watching you get on dear said his wife well i was coming home late on a blasted lazy donkey dog tied into the bargain when my donkey boy suddenly ran for his life and left me alone it was after sunset the sand was red and shining and the big cliff sort of fiery and my donkey stuck its four feet on the ground and wouldn't budge then about fifty yards away i saw a fellow european apparently doing something heaven knows what for i can't describe it among the boulders that lie all over the ground there ceremony i suppose you'd call it i was so interested that at first i watched then i saw he wasn't alone there were a lot of moving things round him towering big things that came and went like shadows that twilight is fearfully bewildering perspective changes and distance gets all confused it's fearfully hard to see properly i only remember that i got off my donkey and went up closer and when i was within a dozen yards of him well it sounds such rot you know but i swear the thing suddenly rushed off and left him there alone they went with a roaring noise like wind shadowy but tremendously big they were and they vanished up against the fiery precipices as though they slipped bang into the stone itself the only thing i can think of to describe them is well those sandstorms the camasin raises the hot winds you know they probably were sand his wife suggested burning to tell another story of her own 
Possibly, only there wasn't a breath of wind, and it was hot as blazes, and I had such extraordinary sensations. Never felt anything like it before. Wild and exhilarated. Drunk, I tell you. Drunk. You saw them? asked Henriot. You made out their shape at all, or outline? Sphinx, he replied at once. For all the world like sphinxes. You know the kind of face and head those limestone strata in the desert take. Great visages with square Egyptian headdresses, where the driven sand has eaten away the softer stuff beneath. You see it everywhere. Enormous idols, they seem, with faces and eyes and lips awfully like the sphinx. Well, that's the nearest I can get to it. He puffed his pipe hard, but there was no sign of levity in him. He told the actual truth as far as in him lay, yet half ashamed of what he told, and a good deal he left out, too. "'She's got a face of the same sort, that Statham horror,' his wife said with a shiver. "'Reduce the size and paint in awful black eyes, and you've got her exactly. A living idol!' And all three laughed, yet a laughter without merriment in it. "'And you spoke to the man?' "'I did,' the Englishman answered. "'Though I confess I am a bit ashamed of the way I spoke. "'Fact is, I was excited, thunderingly excited, and felt a kind of anger. "'I wanted to kick the beggar for practising such bally rubbish, and in such a place, too. "'Yet all the time, well, well, I believe it was a sheer funk now,' he laughed, "'for I felt uncommonly queer out there in the dusk, alone with—' that kind of business, and I was angry with myself for feeling it. Anyhow, I went up. I'd lost my donkey boy as well, remember, and slatted him like a dog. I can't remember what I said exactly, only that he stood and stared at me in silence. That made it worse. Seemed twice as real then. The beggar said no single word the whole time. He signed to me with one hand to clear out. And then, suddenly, out of nothing, she, that woman— appeared and stood beside him. I never saw her come. She must have been behind some boulder or other, for she simply rose out of the ground. She stood there and stared at me too, bang in the face. She was turned toward the sunset, what was left of it in the west, and her black eyes shone like— Ugh, I can't describe it. It was shocking. She spoke. She said five words, and her voice. It'll make you laugh. It was metallic like a gong. "'You are in danger here.' "'That's all she said. "'I simply turned and cleared out as fast as ever I could. "'But I had to go on foot. "'My donkey had followed its boy long before. "'I tell you, smile as you may, "'my blood was all curdled for an hour afterwards.' "'Then he explained that he felt some kind of explanation "'or apology was due, "'since the couple lodged in his own hotel, "'and somehow he approached the man in the smoking-room after dinner.' A conversation resulted. The man was quite intelligent, after all, of which only one sentence had remained in his mind. "'Perhaps you can explain it, Felix. I wrote it down as well as I could remember. The rest confused me beyond words or memory, though I must confess it did not seem—well, not utter rot, exactly. It was about astrology and rituals and the worship of the old Egyptians, and I don't know what else besides.' Only he made it intelligible and almost sensible. If only I could have got the hang of the thing enough to remember it. You know, he added, as though believing in spite of himself, 
there is a lot of that wonderful old egyptian religious business still hanging about in the atmosphere of this place say what you like but this sentence henriot asked and the other went off to get a notebook where he had written it down he was jawing you see he continued when he came back henriot and his wife having kept silence meanwhile about direction being of importance in religious ceremonies west and north symbolizing certain powers or something of the kind why people turn to the east and all that sort of thing and speaking of the whole universe as if it had living forces tucked away in it that expressed themselves somehow when roused up that's how i remember it anyhow and then he said this thing in answer to some fool question probably that i put and he read out of the notebook you were in danger because you came through the gateway of the west and the powers from the gateway of the east were at that moment rising and therefore in direct opposition to you then came the following apparently a simile offered by way of explanation mansfield read it in a shamefaced tone evidently prepared for laughter whether i strike you on the back or in the face determines what kind of answering force i rouse in you direction is significant and he said it was the period called the night of power time when the desert encroaches and spirits are close and tossing the book aside he lit his pipe again and waited a moment to hear what might be said can you explain such gibberish he asked at length as neither of his listeners spoke but henriot said he couldn't and then the wife took up her own tale of stories that had grown about this singular couple these were less detailed and therefore less impressive but all contributed something toward the atmosphere of reality that framed the entire picture they belonged to the type one hears of at every dinner party in egypt stories of the vengeance mummies seemed to take on those who robbed them desecrating their piece of centuries of a woman wearing a necklace of scarabs taken from a princess's tomb who felt hands about her throat to strangle her of little car figures pashed goddesses amulets and the rest that brought curious disasters to those who kept them they are many and various astonishingly circumstantial often and vouched for by persons the reverse of credulous the modern superstition that haunts the desert gullies with afrites has nothing in common with them they rest upon a basis of indubitable experience and they remain inexplicable and about the personalities of lady statham and her nephew they crowded like flies attracted by a dish of fruit the arabs too were afraid of her she had difficulty in getting guides and dragomen my dear chap concluded mansfield take my advice and have nothing to do with them there is a lot of queer business knocking about in this old country and people like that know ways of reviving it somehow it's upset you already you look scared i thought the moment you came in they laughed but the englishman was in earnest i tell you what he added we'll go off for a bit of shooting together the fields along the delta are packed with birds now they're home early this year on their way to the north what do you say eh but henriot did not care about the quail shooting he felt more inclined to be alone and think things out by himself he had come to his friends for comfort and instead they had made him uneasy and excited his interest had suddenly doubled though half afraid he longed to know what these two were up to to follow the adventure to the bitter end he disregarded the warning of his host as well as the premonition in his own heart 
the sand had caught his feet there were moments when he laughed in utter disbelief but these were optimistic moods that did not last he always returned to the feeling that truth lurked somewhere in the whole strange business and that if he joined forces with them as they seemed to wish he would witness well he hardly knew what but it enticed him as danger does the reckless man or death the suicide the sand had caught his mind he decided to offer himself to all they wanted his pencil too he would see a shiver ran through him at the thought what they saw and know some eddy of that vanished tide of power and splendour the ancient egyptian priesthood knew and that perhaps was even common experience in the far-off days of dim atlantis the sand had caught his imagination too he was utterly sand haunted end of chapter six of sand four weird tales by algernon blackwood sand chapter seven and so he took pains though without making definite suggestion to place himself in the way of this woman and her nephew only to find that his hints were disregarded they left him alone if they did not actually avoid him moreover he rarely came across them now only at night or in the queer dusk hours he caught glimpses of them moving hurriedly off from the hotel and always desertwards and their disregard well calculated inflamed his desire to the point when he almost decided to propose himself quite suddenly then the idea flashed through him how do they come these odd revelations when the mind lies receptive like a plate sensitized by anticipation that they were waiting for a certain date and with the notion came mansfield's remark about the night of power believed him by the old egyptian calendar as a time when the supersensuous world moves closer against the minds of men with all its troop of possibilities and the thought once lodged in its corner of imagination grew strong he looked it up ten days from now he found Leel el sud would be upon him with a moon too at the full and the strange hint of guidance he accepted in his present mood as he admitted smiling to himself he could accept anything it was part of it it belonged to the adventure but even while he persuaded himself that it was play the solemn reality of what lay ahead increased amazingly sketched darkly in his very soul these intervening days he spent as best he could impatiently a prey to quite opposite emotions in the blazing sunshine he thought of it and laughed but at night he lay often sleepless, calculating chances of escape. He never did escape, however. The desert that watched little Helwan with great unwinking eyes watched also every turn and twist he made. Like this oasis, he basked in the sun of older time and dreamed beneath forgotten moons. The sand at last had crept into his inmost heart, it sifted over him. Seeking a reaction from normal, everyday things, he made tourist trips. 
Yet while recognizing the comedy in his attitude, he never could lose sight of the grandeur that banked it up so hauntingly. These two contrary emotions grafted themselves on all he did and saw. He crossed the Nile at Bedrashain and went again to the tomb world of Saqqara. But through all the chatter of veiled and helmeted tourists, the banderlog of our modern jungle ran this dark understream of awe their monkey methods could not turn aside. One world lay upon another, but this modern lair was a shallow crust that, like the phenomenon of the desert film, a mere angle of falling light could instantly obliterate. Beneath the sand, deep down, he passed along the street of tombs, as he'd often passed before, moved then merely by historical curiosity and admiration, but now by emotions for which he'd found no name. He saw the enormous sarcophagi of granite in the gloomy chambers, where the sacred bulls once lay swathed and embalmed like human beings, and in the flickering candlelight the mood of ancient rites surged round him, menacing his doubts and laughter. The least human whisper in these subterraneans, dug out first four thousand years ago, revived ominous powers that stalked beside him, forbidding and premonitive. He gazed at the spots where Mariette, unearthing them forty years ago, found fresh as of yesterday the marks of fingers and naked feet of those who set the sixty-five-ton slabs in position. And when he came up again into the sunshine, he met the eternal questions of the pyramids, overtopping all his mental horizons. Sand blocked all the avenues of younger emotion, leaving the channels of something in him incalculably older, open, and clean-swept. He slipped homewards, uncomfortable and followed, glad to be with the crowd, because he was otherwise alone with more than he could dare to think about. Keeping just ahead of his companions, he crossed the desert edge, where the ghost of Memphis walks under rustling palm trees that screen no stone left upon another of all its mile-long populous splendors. For here was a vista his imagination could realize. Here he could know the comfort of solid ground his feet could touch. Gigantic Ramesses, lying on his back beneath their shade and staring at the sky, similarly helped to steady his swaying thoughts. Imagination could deal with these. And daily thus he watched the busy world go to and fro to its scale of tips and bargaining, and gladly mingled with it, trying to laugh and study guidebooks and listen to half-fledged explanations, but always seeing the comedy of his poor attempts. Not all those little donkeys, bells tinkling, beads shining, trotting beneath their comical burdens to the tune of shouting and belaboring, could stem his tide of deeper things the woman had let loose in the subconscious part of him. Everywhere he saw the mysterious camels go slouching through the sand, gurgling the water in their skinny extended throats. Centuries passed between the enormous knee-stroke of their stride, and every night the sunsets restored the forbidding graver mood with their crimson golden splendor, their strange green shafts of light, then sudden twilight, 
that brought the past upon him with an awful leap. Upon the stage then stepped the figures of this pair of human beings, chanting their ancient plain song of incantation in the moonlit desert, and working their rites of unholy evocation as the priests had worked them centuries before in the sands that now buried Saqqara fathoms deep. Then one morning he woke with a question in his mind, as though it had been asked of him in sleep and he had waked just before the answer came. Why do I spend my time sightseeing instead of going alone into the desert as before? What has made me change? This latest mood now asked for explanation, and the answer, coming up automatically, startled him. It was so clear and sure, had been lying in the background all along. One word contained it. Vance. The sinister intentions of this man, forgotten in the rush of other emotions, asserted themselves again convincingly. The human horror, so easily comprehensible, had been smothered for the time by the hint of unearthly revelations. But it had operated all the time. Now it took the lead. He dreaded to be alone in the desert with this dark picture in his mind of what Vance meant to bring there to completion. This abomination of a selfish human will returned to fix its terror in him. To be alone in the desert meant to be alone with the imaginative picture of what Vance, he knew it with such strange certainty, hoped to bring about there. There was absolutely no evidence to justify the grim suspicion. It seemed indeed far-fetched enough, this connection between the sand and the purpose of an evil-minded, violent man. But Henriot saw it true. He could argue it away in a few minutes, easily, yet the instant thought ceased, it returned, led up by intuition. It possessed him, filled his mind with horrible possibilities. He feared the desert as he might have feared the scene of some atrocious crime, and for the time this dread of a merely human thing corrected the big seduction of the other, the suggested supernatural. Side by side with it, his desire to join himself to the purposes of the woman increased steadily. They kept out of his way, apparently. The offer seemed withdrawn. He grew restless, unable to settle to anything for long, and once he asked the porter casually if they were leaving the hotel. Lady Statham had been invisible for days, and Vance was somehow never within speaking distance. He heard with relief that they had not gone but with dread as well. Keen excitement worked in him underground. He slept badly. Like a schoolboy, he waited for the summons to an important examination that involved portentous issues, and contradictory emotions disturbed his peace of mind abominably. Chapter 8 But it was not until the end of the week when Vance approached him with purpose in his eyes and manner, that Henriot knew his fears unfounded and caught himself trembling with sudden anticipation, because the invitation so desired yet so dreaded was actually at hand. Firmly determined to keep caution uppermost, yet he went unresistingly to a secluded corner by the palms 
where they could talk in privacy. For prudence is of the mind, but desire is of the soul, and while his brain of today whispered weariness, voices in his heart of long ago shouted commands that he knew he must obey with joy. It was evening, and the stars were out. Helawan, with her fairy twinkling lights, lay silent against the desert edge. The sand was at the flood. The period of the encroaching of the desert was at hand, and the deeps were all astir with movement. But in the windless air was a great peace, a calm of infinite stillness breathed everywhere. The flow of time, before it rushed away backwards, stopped somewhere between the dust of stars and desert. The mystery of sand touched every street with its unutterable softness. And Vance began without the smallest circumlocution. His voice was low, in keeping with the scene, but the words dropped with a sharp distinctness into the other's heart like grains of sand that pricked the skin before they smothered him. Caution they smothered instantly. Resistance, too. I have a message for you from my aunt, he said, as though he brought an invitation to a picnic. Henriot sat in shadow, but his companion's face was in a patch of light that followed them from the windows of the central hall. There was a shining in the light blue eyes that betrayed the excitement his quiet manner concealed. We're going, the day after tomorrow, to spend the night in the desert. She wondered if perhaps you would care to join us. For your experiment? asked Henriot bluntly. Vance smiled with his lips, holding his eyes steady, though unable to suppress the gleam that flashed in them and was gone so swiftly. There was a hint of shrugging his shoulders. It is the night of power, in the old Egyptian calendar, you know, he answered with assumed lightness almost. The final moment of the El El Sud, the period of black nights when the desert was held to encroach with, with various possibilities of a supernatural order. She wishes to revive a certain practice of the old Egyptians. There may be curious results. At any rate, the occasion is a picturesque one, better than this cheap imitation of London life and he indicated the lights, the signs of people in the hall dressed for gaieties and dances, the hotel orchestra that played after dinner. Henriot at the moment answered nothing. So great was the rush of conflicting emotions that came he knew not whence. Vance went calmly on. He spoke with a simple frankness that was meant to be disarming. Henriot never took his eyes off him. The two men stared steadily at one another. She wants to know if he will come and help too, uh, in a certain way only. Not in the experiment itself precisely, but by watching merely and... He hesitated an instant, half lowering his eyes. Drawing the picture, Henriot helped him deliberately. Drawing what you see, yes, Vance replied. The voice turned graver in spite of himself. She wants... She hopes to catch the outlines of anything that happens, comes, exactly, determine the shape of anything that comes. You may remember your conversation of the other night with her. She's very certain of success. This was direct enough, at any rate. 
It was as formal as an invitation to a dinner, and as guileless. The thing he thought he wanted lay within his reach. He had merely to say yes. He did say yes. But first he looked about him instinctively, as for guidance. He looked at the stars twinkling high above the distant Libyan plateau, at the long arms of the desert gleaming weirdly white in the moonlight, and reaching towards him down every opening between the houses, at the heavy mass of the Mokatam hills, guarding the Arabian wilderness with strange peak barriers, their sand-carved ridges dark and still above the Wadi Hof. These questionings attracted no response. The desert watched him, but it did not answer. There was only the shrill whistling cry of the lizards, and the sing-song of a white-robed Arab gliding down the sandy street. And through these sounds he heard his own voice answer, I will come, yes, but how can I help? Tell me what you propose, your plan. And the face of Vance, seen plainly in the electric glare, betrayed his satisfaction. The opposing things in the fellow's mind of darkness fought visibly in his eyes and skin. The sordid motive, planning a dreadful act, leaped to his face, and with it a flash of this other yearning that sought unearthly knowledge, perhaps believed it, too. No wonder there was conflict written on his features. Then all expression vanished again. He leaned forward, lowering his voice. You remember our conversation about there being types of life too vast to manifest in a single body, and my aunt's belief that these were known to certain of the older religious systems of the world? Perfectly. Her experiment, then, is to bring one of these great powers back. We possess the sympathetic ritual that can rouse some among them to activity, and win it down into the sphere of our minds our minds heightened, you see, by ceremonial to that stage of clairvoyant vision which can perceive them. And then? They might have been discussing the building of a house, so naturally followed answer upon question. But the whole body of meaning in the old Egyptian symbolism rushed over him with a force that shook his heart. Memory came so marvelously with it. If the power floods down into our minds with sufficient strength for actual form, to note the outline of such form, and from your drawing model it later in permanent substance, then we should have means of evoking it at will, for we should have its natural body, the form it built itself, its signature, image, pattern, a starting point, you see, for more, leading, she hopes, to a complete reconstruction. It might take actual shape, assume a bodily form visible to the eye, repeated Henriot, amazed as before that doubt and laughter did not break through his mind. We are on the earth, was the reply, spoken unnecessarily low since no living thing was within earshot. We are in physical conditions, are we not? Even a human soul we do not recognize unless we see it in a body. Parents provide the outline, the signature, the sigil of the returning soul. This, and he tapped himself upon the breast, 
is the physical signature of that type of life we call a soul. Unless there is life of a certain strength behind it, no body forms, and without a body we are helpless to control or manage it, deal with it in any way. We could not know it, though being possibly aware of it. To be aware, you mean, is not sufficient? For he noticed the italics Vance made use of. Too vague, of no value for future use, was the reply. But once obtain the form, and we have the natural symbol of that particular power. And a symbol is more than image. It is a direct and concentrated expression of the life it typifies. Possibly terrific. It may be a body, then, the symbol you speak of? Accurate vehicle of manifestation. But body seems the simplest word. Vance answered very slowly and deliberately, as though weighing how much he would tell. His language was admirably evasive. Few, perhaps, would have detected the profound significance the curious words he next used unquestionably concealed. Henriot's mind rejected them, but his heart accepted, for the ancient soul in him was listening and aware. Life, using matter to express itself in bodily shape, first traces a geometrical pattern, from the lowest form in crystals upwards to more complicated patterns in the higher organizations, there is always first this geometrical pattern as skeleton. For geometry lies at the root of all possible phenomena, and is the mind's interpretation of a living movement towards shape that shall express it. He brought his eyes closer to the other, lowering his voice again. Hence, he said softly, the signs in all the old magical systems, skeleton voice, skeleton forms into which the powers evoked descended, outlines those powers automatically built up when using matter to express themselves. Such signs are material symbols of their bodiless existence. They attract the life they represent and interpret, obtain the correct true symbol, and the power corresponding to it can approach. Once roused and made aware, it has, you see, a ready-made mold into which it can come down. Once roused and made aware, repeated Henriot questioningly, while this man went stammering the letters of a language that he himself had used too long ago to recapture fully. Because they have left the world, they sleep unmanifested, their forms are no longer known to men. No forms exist on earth today that could contain them. But they may be awakened, he added darkly. They are bound to answer to the summons, if such summons be accurately made. Evocation, whispered Henriot, more distressed than he cared to admit. Vance nodded. Leaning still closer to his companion's face, he thrust his lips forward, speaking eagerly, earnestly, yet somehow at the same time horribly. And we want, my aunt would ask, your draftsman's skill, or at any rate your memory afterwards, to establish the outline of anything that comes. He waited for the answer, still keeping his face uncomfortably close. 
Henriot drew back a little, but his mind was fully made up now. He had known from the beginning that he would consent, for the desire in him was stronger than all the caution in the world. The past inexorably drew him into the circle of these other lives, and the little human dread Vance woke in him seemed just then insignificant by comparison. It was merely of today. You too, he said, trying to bring judgment into it, engaged in evocation, will be in a state of clairvoyant vision. Granted. But shall I, as an outsider, observing with unexcited mind, see anything, know anything, be aware of anything at all, let alone the drawing of it? Unless, the reply came instantly with decision, the descent of power is strong enough to take actual material shape, the experiment is a failure. Anybody can induce subjective vision. Such fantasies have no value, though. They are born of an overwrought imagination. And then he added quickly, as though to clinch the matter before caution and hesitation could take effect. You must watch from the heights above. We shall be in the valley. The Wadi Hof is the place. You must not be too close. Why not too close? asked Henriot, springing forward like a flash before he could prevent the sudden impulse. With a quickness equal to his own, Vance answered. There was no faintest sign that he was surprised. His self-control was perfect. Only the glare passed darkly through his eyes and went back again into the somber soul that bore it. For your own safety, he answered low. The power, the type of life she would waken is stupendous, and if roused enough to be attracted by the pattern symbol into which she would decoy it down, it will take actual physical expression. But how? Where is the body of worshippers through whom it can manifest? There is none. It will, therefore, press inanimate matter into the service. The terrific impulse to form itself a means of expression will force all loose matter at hand towards it. Sands, stones, all it can compel to yield. Everything must rush into the sphere of action in which it operates. Alone, we at the center, and you upon the outer fringe will be safe. Only, you must not come too close. But Henriot was no longer listening. His soul had turned to ice, for here in this unguarded moment the cloven hoof had plainly shown itself. In that suggestion of a particular kind of danger, Vance had lifted a corner of the curtain behind which crouched his horrible intention. Vance desired a witness of the extraordinary experiment, but he desired this witness not merely for the purpose of sketching possible shapes that might present themselves to excited vision, he desired a witness for another reason, too. Why had Vance put that idea into his mind, this idea of so peculiar danger? It might well have lost him the very assistance he seemed so anxious to obtain. Henriot could not fathom it quite. Only one thing was clear to him. He, Henriot, was not the only one in danger. They talked for long after that, far into the night. The lights went out and the armed patrol, pacing to and fro outside the iron railings that kept the desert back, 
eyed them curiously, but the only other thing he gathered of importance was the ledge upon the cliff-top where he was to stand and watch. That he was expected to reach there before sunset and wait till the moon concealed all glimmer in the western sky, and that the woman, who had been engaged for days in secret preparation of soul and body for the awful rite, would not be visible again until he saw her in the depths of the black valley far below, busy with this man upon audacious, ancient purposes. End of chapter 8 of Sand <laughs>